Well, there is the thumb of authority. It tells me I can go. Oh, did I mention anything else in the announcements? Oh, it's happy birthday time, so we have cake. <sighs> June the 23rd, 2019, lecture discussion number 69 on the book of Joel. This is going to be the epilogue of what we've done the last three weeks or so. Might be four. I'd have to go back and count, which I never do, which is Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and how Exodus 17, 1 through 7 is this tremendous... piece of scripture which fits, intertwines itself with Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, which are the testing of Christ by Satan. Not the temptation of Christ. Christ cannot be tempted. He's omniscient. He's also uh, omnibenevolent. He has no sin in him, no thought of sin. So, but Exodus 17, 1 through 7 is something that Christ quotes while he is undergoing the testing from Satan. And actually, as I pointed out last week, it is more accurately, in my opinion, to be called the trial of Christ. In other words, Christ is on put, is put on trial just as Israel put God on trial. Satan puts God on trial. Christ is God. At all times, never is he not God. But in any event, you see this trial that occurs in Exodus and you see the trial that occurs in Matthew 4 so and Mark 1 and Luke 4. So all of that fits together. And uh, I said that because we have somebody from Texas that would go, what is he talking about? Don't feel bad. Everybody will say that at some point during this lecture. Most of them will be asleep within five minutes and you can get up and walk around and feel. Come, take, get the, there's a cake. There's Kentucky Fried Chicken back there. Anyway, this is the epilogue of all of that that we've done in the last four weeks. And before we return to Joel by way of Revelation, because that's where I left, I diverted uh, for a bit. And I think it's important to see Matthew 4 and Mark, I'm sorry, Luke 4 and Mark 1 show up in Revelation consistently. And before we return to the book of Joel by way of Revelation, uh, there's a few items of interest that have come along during the week, and probably the most significant was the disclosure. This is part of what I did in the pregame here. I'm including it for the uh, vast Internet audience. There's this disclosure from the Chinese government this week that they have, in fact, verified that they, are, they have the practice of killing political and ethnic prisoners and they're doing it for the singular purpose of harvesting the organs of those prisoners. And the international for market for human organs, human tissue, eyes, whatever you think, blood, the market for that is lucrative. And to put it mildly, the communist Chinese have no moral concerns. And that's your political truth of the, of the day. Atheistic communism always is atheistic communism. It is always the same. It has a symbiosis with atheistic eugenics. There is no moral compunction at all or concern for killing anything in China. Killing is just the natural uh, logical progression from whatever it is that they need. Atheistic communism and atheistic eugenics both view human beings as disposable. They view human beings as property subject to economic advantage. You can see that in the eugenics movement in this country. They see killing as an economic process. So do the Chinese. Slaughtering people for profit is expected. It's a natural outgrowth of atheism, communism. It's required, actually. 
Every communist com- country has eliminated millions and millions of people. It's what it does. It's a death cult. Now somebody will be angry at me for saying that. I apologize for nothing. So you can guarantee yourself it is a certainty that killing people will come from governments formed with the precepts of communism. Now, who do you suspect is purchasing the organs of these murdered souls? Uh, you should know that quite a few of them are what, uh, et- not ethnicity, what religious belief? Islam. The Chinese have decided that Islam is not something that they will approve of. They are rounding them up and imprisoning them. Who do you think is buying the organs? Well, now that would be the medical facilities all over the world. And, uh, and who do you think their clients are? How much do you think it costs? This is the very wealthy. These are foreigners. These are not Chinese uh, getting access to these human uh, tissue systems. And I asked, of course, is there any contemplative consideration for the origin of the source of the tissues? No. Probably not. Keep in mind that the communist Chinese imprison not just individuals, but they imprison entire families based on their religions. Because, in other words, it's a belief system, not necessarily for criminal activities or criminal behavior. So these aren't criminals. These are religious groups. And atheism, which is what the, again, communism, the foundation of communism is atheism. Atheism is very well aware of the danger posed posed to it by Christians, by the Bible. There's going to be more Christians in China than any place else in the world by 2030. And when you read Revelation, you have a tendency to read Revelation as, especially the tribulation, as how it applies to the United States, don't you? Because that's where we are. We think the United States is prominent. The United States is not prominent. When you read about the martyrs, who do you think they are? They're very likely in China. You see, because Christians do not worship governments, we have a, a large group of people in this country today that look to government as the source of, its, uh, of their problems, or not the source, but the solution to their problems. Sorry, I said that backwards. Christians do not see the government as the uh, solution to the problems. They see the government as the source of problems, to quote Reagan. The most dangerous things you could ever hear is somebody who says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. That's that's Reagan's great line, and that is absolutely the case in the United States. Christians do not view the government as something that is uh, holy, where others, of course, are the opposite. We have two completely diametrically opposed philosophies now with regard to government. So Christians do not worship governments. And thus are not subject to government control. How do you think the Chinese feel about that? The fact that there are going to be more Christians in China than anywhere else in the world. How are they going to respond? Well, they're already telling us how they're going to respond. They're going to drive the price of organ tissue, organ uh, and tissue, human tissues, human blood. They're going to drive it down because they're going to have more donors. Coercion will be the uh, definitive Adjective. Communism at its core is designed to replace the structures, the belief systems of Christians.
That's how it is a response to Christianity. Some will say that's not what Engels and Marx were doing, but I will argue otherwise. So, how great a wickedness is this, what the Chinese are doing? Genesis 13, 13. We had great wickedness in two places in the Bible. You've heard me say this, 13, 13 of Genesis and Genesis 6. Those are where great wickedness is described by God. I almost had a little feedback there with this. Do I need to turn it down, Terry? Did you hear me? I walked over here, and there it starts to do that. I know. I'm going to turn it away from me a bit. Genesis 6, Genesis 13, 13. That's the standard. That is, that is evil, a great wickedness standard as described by God himself. What level of evil has China achieved with killing people in order to make money from their dead bodies by salvaging their organs? How evil is that? How much blood cries out to God? Genesis 4. Those of my generation remember Joseph Mengele. If you remember Joseph Mengele, if you know who he is, then you've identified yourself as somebody who watched Gunsmoke and therefore you're old. But Joseph Mengele was discussed when I was a child because of who he was. He was the incredibly evil doctor of the Nazi death camps who operated on primarily, he looked for Jewish children. He wanted twins. A great deal of his research was incorporated into modern medical uh, uh, documentation and medical books. There we go. We came up with a word finally that made sense. Joseph Mengele was incredibly evil. The, the doctor of the Nazi death camps, and he died on the beaches, I think, of uh, Brazil. He lived to a ripe old age. They never caught him. He escaped. They looked for him with everything they had for what he did. Then we also were taught about the starvation of Ukraine when I was a child, the Holodomor that was perpetrated by Russia. The Russians starved the Ukrainians, shut their oil and gas off. How's that? Shut off their food supply, shut off everything, and starved millions and millions of people. It's called the Holodomor. Death by starvation. And, of course, we have the massacre of the Armenian Christians by the young Turks. Now, that's so fascinating. Do you know that there's a group, a political group today, that calls themselves the Young Turks? They do. Well, the Young Turks are famous or infamous. The Young Turks came to power and almost immediately began the Armenian Genocide. 1915, 1920. And who was, uh, the, who, what was the nation? What, where do you, who do you suppose was allied with the Germans in World War I? Oh, yes, that would be the Turks. Who's allied with the Germans now? Oh, yes, and the Russians. That would be the Turks. That's the, that's the remnant of the Ottoman Empire, right? And, of course, China, we were taught about Mao Zedong. We call him Mao Zedong. Now it's Mao Zedong, they say. So my, my elementary education for Mrs. Miller is obsolete now. Mrs. Rowland. Miss Kelly. I always felt bad for Miss Kelly. 
Then, then I recognized that was the meanest teacher I ever had. And the best, as a matter of fact. There's your lesson for today. That's right, applicational sermon, in case you think that I don't do that. Anyway, China, we were taught, and it's true, after killing millions and millions of the Chinese under Mao, communism kills, is harvesting human beings now. Have they reached the level of Sodom? Apparently not. How do I know? Because they're still there. You get to Sodom, God stops you. You get to Genesis 6, he stops you. China has not yet been stopped. What happens in Ezekiel 38? I put this on the board for the vast internet audience. That army comes down to kill the Jews. Ah. That army comes down to kill the Jews. I have problems, Terry. I'm going to have to come up with another plan. I'm going to drop its volume. Hopefully that works. Can you, you think it's enough to get to your speaker system? I'm going to come just a little bit more. <sighs> okay, being a professional, I'll figure out where I'm at. How bad was it at Sodom? It's so bad that the God, the loving God, the long-suffering God of creation brought fire. What will happen in Ezekiel 38 when that army hits Israel? They will be destroyed by God himself and Israel will know it. And the countries from which they come will be burned. So there we go again. It has a way of repeating itself. Human behavior is nothing but predictable. And I have long said that Russia, Germany, Turkey is going to reap incredible wrath for what they have done. And that is Ezekiel 38. God has not forgotten the Armenians, the Ukrainians, and he has not forgotten the Jews, of course. Russia and Germany slaughtered his nation in World War II. And China will also reap the wrath of God for what they have done. He is a holy God. He is long-suffering. And again, there's more Christians in China probably right now than any other country in the world. But of these four, China, with its emphasis on human experimentation, is the most likely candidate to rise to the wickedness level of Sodom. Post-Alluvian, what I mean by that is post-flood. Obviously, Genesis 6 is pre-flood. Genesis 13 is post-flood. So um, China is the closest. Are you aware that they are having babies that are born that have been genetically modified? They have. They are doing it. They are producing children that are genetically modified. What are the consequences of that to those children? No one knows. There is nothing to curb them. There certainly is no moral foundation there. They're doing what they feel is necessary in order to achieve what? As much power as they can get. If you've got approaching, they're approaching well over, they're well over a billion people. They're approaching probably a billion and a half by now. There's so many, it's difficult to have a census in China. It's like painting the 
the Golden Gate Bridge, once you're done painting it, what do you do? You start painting it again. The same thing with the census in China. Once you've counted them, you're continually counting now. There's that many people. China and India are exploding. It's an exponential issue, as you can obviously tell. If I got a billion and a half people, which may be in fact what they have, then it's really easy to get to two billion people very quickly. And that seems to be uh, something that we could expect. Well, if you have two billion people, what do you need? Food, water. And that, what if you cannot produce enough food? Then you need to seize it from somebody who can. That's the only option. So you can see the world begin to careen towards this uh, apex of, of chaos. Okay. Along these lines also here in the contemporary part of the lecture today is the report of success medically of chimeric antigens, chimeric antigen receptor T cells to be more complete with respect to blood cancers. In other words, essentially it is the withdrawal of blood from somebody with cancer of the blood. They filter out the T cells, the immune T cells. They modify the T cells to recognize and target the cancerous blood cells. They duplicate these modified T cells into the millions, these genetically modified T cells, uh, and then they reinject them into the person that they took them from. And what do they do? They attack the cancerous cells. That's fantastic. So they're getting very successful. There's some neurological uh, issues with this. In other words, there's some, there's some unforeseen uh, side effects, but they are, seem to be clearing up. In any event, if you have cancerous blood, the immunotherapy of the uh, what they call the chimeric antigen receptor T cells, chimera. Isn't that interesting? It's good that they're doing this, but look at what they called it. I mean, it's amazing. I'm glad they're, uh, it's extraordinary technology. Costs about $500,000. So that's a problem. But anytime you are having medical developments that include blood, I think of Leviticus 17:11, and I'm interested in you. I also think of Sodom. Most, most especially are those that are, are labeled chimeric. I go, really chimeric? That's what you call this? That's what they call it. This is the name they chose. Why not, why not somebody invent a language system, I don't know, that translates in, let's call it Babel. Who would do, oh wait. I mean, you've got to be kidding. I have a chimeric blood system and I have a Babel translation system. Facebook, I know they're going to throw me off of Facebook, I can't wait. Facebook will soon announce that they're going to have, well they've already announced it, they're going to have a worldwide digital economic, uh, Financial structure, right? Cashless. Let's. Hey, I have a. I have a suggestion. Facebook. Why don't you call it Mark of the Beast six six six? Put it on your digital money that doesn't really exist. That they can erase with a keystroke if they don't like you. Who in the world would sign up for that? Apparently, everybody. They're confident. A long time ago, I said we were going to see negative interest rates, and that's especially the case when we, um, when we see digital money, because I can force you to buy something. If you don't buy it, I just erase it from your account. Pick. There's no physicality to it. It's all in, it's all in, uh, it's a mental system. There's no physical property.
Who trusts Facebook? You have to be kidding. Will mankind actually really be this stupid that they'll sign up for Mark of the Beast or Facebook Mark of the Beast 666? Will they do it? Yes, man will. Hey, chimeric surgeries. What could go wrong? The correct answer is yes, man will be this stupid. Judas, now we're back finally to the subject. Judas Satan will expose, and they did expose in some regard already, but they are going to expose the incredible idiocy, madness of humanity. Why does Satan want to expose the stupidity of human beings? Why is, why, and that's the point. One of the primary motivations of Satan is to demonstrate the willingness of human beings to self-debase. That's what he's doing. Why does he want to do that? Why does he want to hold up a big sign pointing to all of humanity and say, see how stupid these people are? Because we are. And he knows it. How does that fit with what he says or what is said about him in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, and Revelation 17. You write all that down? That was for the Internet. They can push through. But you've got all of those things. How does it fit with the testing of Christ, the trial of Christ? How does it fit with... Uh, the fact that Adam was not deceived. How does it fit, fit with man, the two trees being set in front of man, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of evil? How does it fit with the fall of man in Genesis 3? How does it fit with uh, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, which again, testing of Christ in Revelation 17, which is when the beast and Satan are worshipped? Obviously, Satan wills to expose the depravity of man, the unfitness, to use a more, I think, applicable term, the incompetence of humankind. That's what he wants to demonstrate. He's shaming humanity. And who's he shaming humanity in front of? Who does he want to see the stupidity? Who's left? All that's left is the angelic realm, right? The angelic living beings. And so he's demonstrating to these living beings, these angels, if you will, fallen and unfallen, that humanity is ridiculously stupid. Have I said stupid enough? There needs to be another word for stupid. More stupid. But again, to repeat, what's to be gained? Why, why, why is he doing it? What does he gain by it? And last item on the current events portion, or what I used to call things I learned from watching TV. Apparently, a renowned theologian has released a video this week, which the thesis statement is, the doctrine of eternal security is a myth. That's what he has said. Here he goes. And I may not have that exactly uh, accurate. Exactly accurate is a redundancy alert. And if I have mischaracterized the renowned theologian, uh, once again, I apologize for nothing. I'm close enough. Anyway, the gist can be derived from his lecture title. The doctrine of eternal security is a myth. Oh, no. I get it. Keep the head up. Ugh. 
Yea, me. Let's all sing the Yea, me song. Ready? On three. Actually, let's sing it in six, eight, five, four. Key of D flat. Ready? Go. <laughs> okay. He says that the doctrine of eternal security is a myth. And he asserts that uh, salvation, therefore, is a temporal condition based on your what? Your performance, your behavior, how much you believe, how hard you pray, whatever it is, he'll come up with something. And there are gatekeepers, I assume, that tell you who it is that is actually saved and who is not actually saved or truly saved to reduce it to. So the basis of uh, your salvation is dependent on your performance or your behaviors to reduce it to its fundamental. Now, I've addressed this topic many times throughout my so-called career. What makes this one a bit interesting is the Internet response, because I've never seen the response to this stuff. It's usually in books or it's in monographs. Um, it's in some churches. I've never actually got to watch the response. Well, this time he's well enough known that the uh, he had uh, he had many many people follow along with him. I guess is the right term. And the and they were overwhelmingly positive. There were hardly any, very few challenges to his thesis, which is a shame, which fits very nicely with what Satan is trying to do to us, right? Shame us for being foolish. There is no shortage of foolishness. But again, why do so many people wish for this to be true? Why does anyone cling to the, to, to the premise of the doctrine of eternal security as a myth? Why do they want it? In this case, it's a celebration ensued in the... In the comment sections, there was huzzas and yippees. Eternal security is destroyed. Let's all be happy. One reader wrote this. Finally, a definitive presentation that defeats the eternal security invention. Again, I ask, why would you want that? Okay. Since victory has been declared... And another issue is settled and all of us must comply and obey and dissension is forbidden. Let me read some of Romans 3.10 through 20 into the record just one more time. There is none righteous, no, not one. Okay, raise your hand if you're righteous. Thank you for never raising your hand. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. Who is going to do good? The just shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. Now, I recognize the renowned theologian will counter by assigning what I just read, the aforementioned Romans 3.10-12. He says, that's the lost people. That's not us, the saved people. Those are those people. We're these people. In other words, the unsaved state. That is referring to the unsaved state. Now, the most obvious of the obvious questions is I could go on who's in the unsaved state. When are you out of the unsaved state and all of that? I could do all of that. But instead, I'm going to pick something else. The unsaved state, does it include children? Does it include infants? I want to know. It's a yes or no question. Are there unsaved children? Are there unsaved tiny children? Very tiny children. 
I wish not to assume the affirmative answer for this from the renowned theologian, but, but the affirmative answer is the norm for those who present that the assurance, the eternal continual salvation is a myth. Those who think that believe that there are unsaved children commonly. They have to. In other words, the majority of infants who die perish forever. That's a very commonly held view. Again, I don't know if this gentleman has that. Maybe he has some kind of hybrid position. But if he does have this, then again, I apologize for nothing. If it's true that there are children who, who are destined for condemnation, and it's not true, in case you were wondering, but if it were true, and it's not true, but let's go ahead and say it's true, it's hard as it is to say that it's true, then you have God doing this. You have him selecting some children for salvation and not selecting others, which is what? Rejecting the others. Now, on the basis of... On what basis does he reject our saved children? Answer me that, dude. What's the basis? He's choosing some for salvation, eternal life. He's choosing others for eternal damnation, suffering, and darkness. And you should recoil from this concept. And you do. Even the purveyors of this position refer to it as a horrifying truth. which I submit is a clue for them to its untenability. When you're saying the truth of God is horrifying, and there are truths of God that are horrifying, like a fire. I'll give you that example real fast. There are horrifying truths of God. For some, judgment will be horrifying. But this is in a different uh, category completely. Is the casting of children and infants in the lake of fire, is this consistent with what the Bible say of God? What the Bible says of God? No, it is not. Will children be judged? Will they stand trial? Yes, they will. How long will the trial take? What will the judge, Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, who sits on the throne and judges all? John 5.39. Everyone. Daniel 7. Daniel 10, Genesis 3. What will the judge say? What will be the verdict? I think that is obvious. Again, the lake of fire is horrifying. So that's the truth. Who chooses utter darkness and evil? Who would choose that? Obviously, hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions. Why do they choose that fate? What causes somebody to willfully reject Life from Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has it. No one else has it. If you're going to go to the life store, he's behind the counter. You can go to the other stores if you want. You can be a universalist, but they don't have any life. They have nothing. They don't have any oil, if you will. They're completely bereft. They have no life blood. They have no life bread. They have no living water. They have nothing. He's the only one that has eternal life. How much does it cost you? What will he sell it to you for? How much is it worth? What's one drop of his blood worth? I've said that hundreds of thousands of times. Okay, that's not true. Tens of thousands of times. It's infinite. The value is infinite. How are you going to earn it? 
How long you have to work to, to earn infinity is a nonsensical, but yet by far incredibly popular security, eternal security is a myth, they say. Who loathes him? He's going to give you eternal life. Why would you hate him for that? Let me ask this question now that I've got here. Will children hate Christ? Will they turn down the eternal life? Will they turn down the living water, the living bread, the living blood, the life blood? No, they will not. Here's a more interesting question. Will animals turn it down? Mark 1. If you haven't been with me, Mark 1 describes animals encircling Christ. Why do they do that? What do they know? Will they reject him? No, they will not. Some will say, what does this have to do with eternal security? But they won't make the connection. So let me help you. How many of the dead children will fail to cling to Christ? Because if it, eternal security is not true, then we're in a temporal situation. And you are, you are saved based on your perseverance, right? That's what they'll tell you. So how many children will fail to cling to Christ? Will fall off? How many of you will fall off? Because this is the alternative, right? If our salvation is dependent on our ability to hold on to Christ, how many, what percentage would survive with the description given of humanity at Romans 3, 10 through 20? Let me repeat. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none that does good, no, not one. The just shall live by faith. Because there is you dims the choices ultimately. Either you cling to Jesus or... He clings to you. Which one would you prefer? Yes, sir. Well, uh, and ultimately that didn't turn out to be the case, did it? So which one would you like to be? Many times I've said and asked, did God devise a plan of salvation through which none would be saved? Because that's what you're proposing, aren't you? If you have this belief that your behavior, your clinging ability is what will save you. Your works based or whatever it is, how well you sing at Cliffside. Uh-oh. Now we're in trouble. That is how well we play the banjo. Oh, my gosh. Doom, doom, despair, hee-haw. If you laugh at that, you're old. Would God devise a plan? Did God devise a plan of salvation that really wasn't a plan of salvation because none would be saved by it? That's something that man would devise, right? Oh, look, somebody did it, and the Internet loves it. It's not true. God is not willing that any should, be, any should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. If it were true that omniscient God instituted a blueprint for salvation that resulted in no one ever being saved, what would be said to him? What would be the accusation? What would be said of him? Well, Exodus 17, 1 through 7 sums it up. This is what Israel said. Why, if, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our animals? Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Do you recognize that? Killing children, 
God has been accused of killing children before. If you're on the side of killing children, then you should reevaluate your doctrine. If you think God has created children to kill them, kill them in the lake of fire for all eternity, if that's your position, you call that a horrifying doctrine, well, you're on the same side as Israel when they put God on trial and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our animals? That's the template of Satan's Ezekiel 28:16 lie and his Genesis 3 lie. They repeat Satan's lie to Eve and Satan's lie to the angels, to God, almost word for word. They changed it just enough to make it apply to themselves. To rephrase a bit, did God create angels and mankind with the predestined intention to kill us all. Because that's the lie of Satan. Did he do it? Is there only annihilation? Is there only extinguishment? Is there no hope? There's no life. There's no eternity. There's no resurrection. There's only an illusion of life. Is life a fabrication? Has God lied about life? And it's all a big lie. Is this the God of the Bible? Again, binary, yes or no. Why does Israel accuse him of this, as they did in Exodus 17, 1 through 7? Why did you bring us out of here just to kill us and our children? Our children don't deserve to die. Our animals don't deserve to die. Why are you killing all of us? And they do, Israel does this over and over again. Exodus 16, 2 through 3, Numbers 14, 2 through 3, 20 through 3, 21, 5. Constantly Israel does this. You almost say, make the case it's incessant and it is identical, as I said, in form and template to the lie of Satan at 28.16 of Ezekiel and Genesis 3. As I stated last Sunday, this accusation is specifically labeled as the testing of God or more accurately the putting of God, the Ancient of Days, the judge on trial and declaring him to be evil. Who are the witnesses declaring God to be evil? Who's the jury? I said last week, if you get a jury summons to appear in a jury trial and God is the defendant, turn it down, fake a hearing loss like I do. (laughs) It's a lot easier to fake now that I'm 66. One more six. Oh, never mind. God says to us and demonstrates that he is good. People will tell me, I had... uh, I have Brady in the front row. He even say to me, he's talking to somebody that says that God is just not getting it done for him. I don't feel good about God now. Well, I would predict that. That's humanity. We are clay-feeted, drowning little gerbil people. We don't have a whole lot going for us. We're called what? Sheep, mucus in the front, dingleberries in the back. Or it could be the reverse. I'm not remembering. But he says he's good, and Israel claimed he's lying about that. And if he's lying about being good, then what's the result of that? He must be evil. And But Christ says, no, I'm the one, I'm God, and I'm the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for you. That's what he tells us. God says, excuse me, that I, that I am the good shepherd, and I'm going to give you life. In fact, I'm going to show you what it costs. For you to have life. Has he proven himself to be good? Has Jesus done that? Or is he lying? Is his redemptive work, his plan of salvation, is it a work of goodness? Or is it in fact a lie, a fabrication, a trick, if you will? Is the Lord among us or not? 
That is a fantastic question. Is the Lord among us or not? That is what Israel says. And God says, that is what they brought up at my trial that they put me on. And you do not put me on trial. This is the question that Israel asks. Is the Lord among us or not? And God refers to that as, as an evil, as it is heresy, it is defaming. And those are the words of defamation to God by his nation of Israel. So what does it mean? Is the Lord among us or not? Because when, he, when they said that, was he visible to them? They had the pillar of cloud. Could they hear his voice all the time? He's overhead. Did they see things that he did? Part of the sea. Got them all across. So it can't be, is he in the congregation? Among us cannot be that. Because again, they had the pillar of cloud. So what does among us mean? Is God among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? How is it the same as Matthew 4, 1 through 6 and Luke 4, 1 through 11 is what I'm asking you now. And if you weren't here you, and you were, are from Texas, you have every excuse. The rest of you don't. Anybody from Texas? Oh, just one. Just one. Pretty soon we'll do what we always do. We'll surround him. A big light will come on. We'll sing some really ridiculous song and we'll steal his wallet. That's what we do. That's exactly how it works. I've used that joke thousands of times. Most people leave. <laughs> ah, dang it, I can't get rid of him. I don't want him. Okay. It is the same. Is God among us or not is exactly what Satan is doing at Matthew 4 when he's putting God on trial. He's repeating it. Obviously, he would. It worked last time. How is it the same? It is the same. I know it's the same because Jesus Christ, the infinite God, omniscient God of creation, Jesus Christ says it's the same. He says, you're saying to me, is the Lord God among us or not? You're saying, you're doing what happened in Exodus 17. That's what he tells Satan and the angels who are watching when he is confronted by Satan in the wilderness at Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Mark 1. You shall not accuse me, I'm paraphrasing. Christ is essentially saying, you shall not accuse me as Israel accused me, Satan. You, you will not. Thank you, I see the hands. Christ says this to the face of Satan in front of the entire angelic host, fallen and unfallen. That's what he says in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And Christ declares then that he is among us, whatever it is among us means. And he said it in response to Satan's first attempt, stone into bread. Let's see. Derek gave me something to discuss for you. Let's see where I put it. Oh, I'll put it, I'll put it next. Christ says, I am among you. Don't accuse me of not being among you. And he says that when Satan first attempts, in Satan's first attempt to him, when Satan said, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus says this, I am among man. Again, whatever that means. 
Man does not have life by bread alone. Did Satan understand that Christ is saying, Exodus 17, I am among man? I don't think so. I don't think Satan got it. I don't think he got it until Christ actually quotes to him Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The trial, putting God on trial at Meribah by Israel. When Christ brings that up to Satan, then Satan makes the attachment. But until then, I don't think he did. And remember that Israel puts God on trial after being given bread from heaven, which they loathed. They hate the bread that God gave them. They hated Christ because it's a picture of Christ. It's manna. It's 21.5 numbers. They loathe the bread. And there are key pieces right there. I am among you, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Eric brought up uh, this morning, he said, why don't you uh, bring in Luke 11, 11 through 13? And I think it's a really good idea. Let me throw that on there with the rest of them. That is where Christ says this wonderful thing, doesn't he? You're evil, he says. I'm not evil. If you ask for something, will I give you bread or a rock? Remember that? Will I give you a stone? How good am I? How good is the Father? When you ask for something, what will he give you? Stone or bread? Oh, isn't that interesting? Satan says, convert stones to bread. That's probably just a coincidence. We can forget about it. Obviously, it is not. Christ, in the context, is, is God evil or good? He brings up stones and bread. So clearly, in Luke and Matthew and Mark, Luke 4, Matthew 4, and Mark 1, not Mark 1 so much, but Luke 4, Matthew 4, the discussion is the same as Luke 11. Therefore, it is a discussion about, is Christ good or evil? Is God good or evil? Same thing. I hope that made sense. If it did, you get more cake and chicken than anyone else. Do you loathe the living bread? The bread of life. That's Christ. John 6, 35 through 51. Do you loathe, hate the living bread? What is the living bread? How is God among us? If he is among us, and he is, what does it mean? How are we made? What does that mean? How do we live? What is life? Did you ever take a biology class in the sixth grade? What's the first question you have to answer? What is life? Define life. First thing they'll ask you. Why do they ask you that if they're good biology teachers? Because they have no answer for it. Biological sciences have never had a definition of life. What exactly is life? And man has attempted to define life for centuries. Aristotle proposed life being an entity that grows, maintains itself, and reproduces. But we have many entities that reproduce itself. How about plasma? If you wish, fire. Is, does it have life? The most popular one, kind of a joke, is the mule. The mule thinks it's alive. They do not reproduce. 
no reproductive abilities, so Aristotle had a few problems with his theory. The physics community, my favorite, of course, Erwin Schrodinger, recently took aim at definition of life-centered, if you want to think of it that way, opposing probably better, and might be more accurate, the second law of thermodynamics. Obviously, I would love his idea. He said, life is that which possesses some potential to resist degradation uh, or to disorder and equilibrium, which means high entropy. He saw... Uh, he saw anything that can, re, that can oppose high en- entropy, an open system, if you will, anything that can stop degrading into chaos, that is a definition of life. But that doesn't work, obviously, because mineral structures can become more complex. They can absorb energy and become more complex. They're not alive. So what does it mean, is God among us or not? What does that mean? Note I'm purposely, non-subtly, insistence, insisting on exchanging the definition of life with, is God among us or not? Did you catch that? Hope so. I think you can say, what is the definition of life? Or you can say, is the Lord God among us or not? It's the same. So Israel is in uh, alone, and they say, what is the definition of life at the trial of God? They're alone in the wilderness, so to speak. They think they're alone. Let me re- rephrase some of this. Biology announces itself as the study of something it cannot define. How's that for a job description? I have a job, and I, can't, I don't know what it is, and I'll never know what it is. Pay me money. I'll work for the government. Or a college which is the same as working for the government. See the student loan program. Anyway, biologists demand that anyone intending to be a biologist accept the absurdity of uh, abiogenesis or biogenesis. Abby is my dog's name. Couldn't help myself. Which is the arising of living from non-living. And if you can made, be made to accept a blatant, ridiculous lie, then you can be led to commit atrocities. That's a famous statement, and you can't get any more absurd, any more ridiculous than life, other than saying by saying, can't get any more ridiculous or absurd by the statement that life rises from non-life. Life cannot rise from non-life. It cannot, and it did not. That is, again, is God among us or not? Hopefully that's starting to make sense. Any honest biological scientist will readily admit that no one has even begun to solve the great mystery of life. Therefore, no one has defined life and cannot define life. Biology strains to merely describe life's functions. All they can do is tell you what you do. They can't tell you why you do it or how you do it. They have no understanding of life as it is in its most basic form. There is no hope to ever gain even a shallow comprehension of the substance, if you will, of life. And you will find countless journals of amino acids and proteins and Miller-Urey primordial conditions and the bombardment of Earth with interstellar molecules, all these different theories, limitless theories on the origins of life. But none of them (coughs) have any merit. They're just hopefulness, wishful thinking. Scientists have convinced themselves that they will someday gain the knowledge to recreate life from something that is inanimate. And they will make, for example, life arise from what? Make life from what? 
No, they can't do it from nothing. They're going to say, make life from a stone. That's what they'll say. Say it's minerals. Life will come arbitrarily out of a stone. And there's your discussion again at Matthew 4. And they think because they believe that life did arise from non-life or non-living things. Is a stone alive? It is not alive. Schrodinger will tell you it's subject to the second law of thermodynamics. It cannot resist thermodynamics. But they will, the biologists will tell you that they believe that life did come out of non-living material. It did come out of rocks. Their thought process is logical if you accept the basic premise, which they do. And hopefully you saw my obvious attempts to place Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 into the discussion. The essence of all of this is this collision between did life come from life or did life come from rocks? That's where we are today. We're still in the same argument, aren't we? And that's Matthew 4. They are mutually exclusive. They cannot be true. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry at all. For those of you who believe that evolutionary or theological evolution is possible, it's ridiculous. Give it up. Just become an atheist. Stop pretending to be a Christian. Only one is true. Life came from life, living from living, biogenesis, or life came from inanimate non-life. Satan in Matthew 4, Luke 4, said to God, make this stone into organic material. Take the inorganic and turn it into organic. And Jesus Christ responded with, the Lord God is among you. What did he mean? Doesn't mean he's standing next to you. He said, man does not live apart from me. I am among you. Your life came from what? Me, he said. My life. Life comes from life. And I'm life. And my life is in you. That's how you live. What's the implications of that with respect to physical death? Physical death is not an issue if you have life. All that is at issue is your destiny, your destination. We'll deal with that in a couple of weeks, July the 14th. But just sit down and start to figure out the definition of is the Lord among us or not? And it'll all hopefully unfold with a nice big red bow. Could be a blue bow. Could be a red and blue bow. And a nice little package and off you will.